Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? All over the place. God damn. Welcome to So Many White Guys. From WNYC Studios. Oh, someone needs to do some voiceover work for Applebee's. That was really good. <laughs> I, want I want my, my baby, baby back, baby back. That's Chili's. Yeah. Oh my God. When you're here, your family. Delicious. <laughs> Olive Garden, when you're here, your family. That's the Olive Garden. <laughs> Okay, this is a bad audition. Applebee's is like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> Do you know that Aiden from um, Sex and the City does voiceover for, uh, uh, I think it is Applebee's or it's Walgreens. <laughs> same, same. No, let me Google it. John Corbett. Applebee's. Yes, I was right. You're going to have to fight him for the... And he does Walgreens. Whoa! I think he does both. Wait, YouTube has a ridiculous John Corbett Walgreens ad. If you're on Medicare Part B and have diabetes, you're probably at the corner of big changes. And where will I get my testing supplies? Oh. It's just like, can we not have such bouncy music when we're talking about fucking diabetes? I honestly thought it, you were going to play the Applebee's ad. No. I was like, why are they talking about diabetes in the Applebee's? It's like a serious disease and Walgreens like, bow, 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 bow. hey guys, you got some diabetes? It's like... We know you're probably struggling to pay for basic health care. <laughs> Oh, I should have looked that up. No, 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 I'm looking it up. I love that our banter is half of us Googling stuff that the, like, listeners can't be involved in the Googling of. (laughs) Okay, the catchphrase is... Yeah. Eating good in the neighborhood. Ooh, but now there's a new ad campaign. Uh Uh-oh. That's just... Oh, my God. Wait, I want you to guess. Okay, so I'm going to read this to you and you guess. Okay. The new focus on fresh, affordable dishes comes with a whole new ad campaign, including a switch from the iconic Eating Good in the Neighborhood slogan to... Hey, guys, we know that food be real crazy right now, and they just be putting all kinds of stuff in it, and we're like, yo, what's this word I can't pronounce? So that's why over at Applebee's, we just keep it real simple. Just salt and pepper. I think that's way better than what they have. Are you are you ready for yes, this? Yes, what's the new I slogan? I know you're sitting down, so I can just tell you. Okay. With a whole new ad campaign, including a switch from the iconic Eating Good in the Neighborhood slogan mm-hmm. to See You Tomorrow. <laughs> that's it. That's the whole slogan. To T T Y L, BRB, Tacos 
for now. <laughs> uh, do you know what? That's what you do when your business is fucking thriving. You're just like, I, they don't need a slogan. No one is like, oh, I never thought of Applebee's, but see, tomorrow's not going to bring me in the door. They know. That is hilarious. You know? Our new slogan. Hello. <laughs> It's like you should just say words. It's not a slogan if it's just like a general like greeting or, you know, departure comment. Yeah, it's wacky. You know what, Joni? What? We got to do a call to action on this. Yes. <laughs> Hit me. I can't wait. I think our call to action is we need to come up with a new slogan for Applebee's. Oh, I agree. I think that's actually, like, a, a reasonable one. I love this. Yeah. So, y- listeners, let's think tank this shit because see you tomorrow is trash. Yes. What about, like, hashtag new slogan for Applebee's? Yes! That is a great call to action, hunty. So, the call to action is hashtag new slogan for Applebee's, and we're going to get them the fuck together. Deal? Deal. Let's do it. Okay, Joanna, I have some tough news to tell you. Uh Uh-oh. We got to go to mid-roll, baby. No! Yes! We're cute. Welcome back, babies. So, Joni, you told me you want to pitch me on a guest for the show this week. Yeah, well, I had a thought, which is that you've done over 30 episodes of this show, which is crazy. Y'alls. And we've been working together for two and a half years. Shout out to Two Dope Queens. Y'alls and y'alls. And the most exciting and insane two and a half years of our lives, really. Like, just a couple of days ago, we were texting back and forth about how we feel like we've just become, like, adults together oh Joni that's so true what's going on where is this going so I have an idea which is what if we flip the script today and I interview you (gasps) what really okay yes I mean as long as there's no like crazy like controversial questions no 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 I mean I am all about gotcha journalism (laughs) hashtag Sarah Palin hashtag never forget Okay, you know what, Joni? Get on in here. Let's be in the same booth for once in our sloppy lives. Oh, my God. Okay, here I come. Okay. How are you? I'm good. Can I tell you if a question is trash? (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Is this my peak? Yes. Your peak is interviewing me in a free people wrap dress. That's like a a significant knockoff of a DVF dress. More like a plateau. (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> just kidding. Just Hi. some playful drags between friends. Um, Phoebes, look at how these tables have turned. I know. You know what? I'm a little bit like, what's going on? Because, you know, I like to control everything. But I'm I'm going to be open and let your questions wash over me. And hopefully, like, I give a good interview. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just lean into that vulnerability, you know? So something that I've observed as we've worked together over the last two years is you actually sometimes remind me so much of myself. And something (laughs) that we've talked about a lot is that we were kind of like not very cool in high school. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when I was in high school and like 
I knew that I was funny, mm-hmm. but I always felt like I like wasn't good at anything. And I never thought that me being funny could like amount to anything. And I'm just curious for you, like, when did you realize that being funny was like a real talent and a skill that you had? Um, I mean, growing up, like, I was always kind of like the sarcastic one in my family, but I still wasn't like, comedy's for me. And so I, you know, I wanted to work in film. Like, mm. I wanted to be a screenwriter and a producer. I think deep down I wanted to be a performer, but I think I just was, like, too ner- scared to admit it to myself. And totally. also, like, you know, you're in Cleveland, Ohio. It's like, okay, you know, it's like, wh- how's that even going to happen? Um, so I, I would say it was probably when I started doing stand-up at 24, like I was turning 24. And so that, for me, I, like, fell in love with his immediately and anything that was going to happen i just took the class because a friend of mine was taking it and she didn't want to take it by herself and i was like all right whatever i'll show up and i really just truly loved it and so i i think as soon as i was i i fell in love with it, i was like all right well i'm just gonna go on this path and see like see where it takes me mm-hmm. like this is what i'm gonna do with my life right yeah so with so many white guys Our Mm -hmm. very first interview was almost two years ago, July of 2016. It was with Lizzo. You had an amazing conversation with her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we had recorded the interview. And then a few days after the interview, Philando Castile was killed by police near Minneapolis, which is where she lived for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we felt like, you know, we're starting this show. It's about politics. We talk a lot about race and we talk a lot about the racism that affects people every single day. And so we decided to do a phone call with Lizzo to talk about what had happened and add it onto the episode. And so Mm. I want to play a clip from that conversation. Ooh, okay. So Lizzo, you've been speaking out on social media a lot and you uh, tweeted this, which I thought was really powerful and I, I feel the same way too about this. You tweeted, I've literally never felt more hopeless in my entire black life. If you ever say... Don't make it about race to me. Delete my number. Um, that's not a new thing for people to say. And I let's talk about this for a minute. Can you talk about like why you tweeted this out? I did it because somebody said why it got to be about race to me. And uh, it really yeah. frustrated me. It's the most yeah. dismissive thing to say to somebody you're just like discarding any type of gravity or reality or perspective that I might have um and it's because that person doesn't know what it's like to be black and when you say you don't know what it's like to be black a lot of people sometimes roll their eyes because they still don't get it It is always good. I was born a black woman, and Mm -hmm. this system and this country will never let me forget that. Yeah. So that's how we started the show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what do you remember about that conversation and about that moment? Um, It was just really nice to, I think a lot of times, especially when we talk about race in this country, you know, a lot of times when that's discussed, it's usually we're usually only paying attention to 
black male voices like DeRay McKesson or Ta-Nehisi Coates. And so a lot of times black women aren't heard. And so for me, I thought it was really nice to just kind of have a moment where we could sort of talk about things and, you know, hash it out, express our feelings. And I think it crystallized for me what the show can do outside of like having like cool and fun conversations with friends. You can really sort of like talk about some real shit. And I think that the audience is down to hear that, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's I mean, one thing that I struggle with is I went back and I listened to that clip and I got really upset because it's been two years and Mm -hmm. it just seems like we're still seeing the same terrible things. And sometimes it feels like things are getting worse. I mean, I think if you're in this country, especially right now, there's going to be moments where you feel sort of hopeless. But I have just kind of been trying to figure out how I can channel those energies into something proactive so that I'm not paralyzed. Um, so hopefully I'm doing that. But, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how to help. You know, I I like the Mr. Rogers. It's, I think he said his mom told him about, like, find the helpers. Mm-hmm. And so that I, I really want to be that helper. So I hope that people look to me and also, like, let me know when, like, hey, this is something you should be, like, putting your focus on. Yeah. One thing that I um, I remember that, you told the story on stage that really shocked me, and it was... Which story is that? Well, it was actually after you and I went to the Lizzo concert, and we split up, and you hung out for a while. Right. And you were waiting outside for your lift. You were by mm-hmm. yourself waiting for your lift, and a white guy came up to you and with his fingers motioned that he was shooting you in the head. Yeah. And... I, like, forgot about that. <laughs> And it's so it's so horrific that I like for I think my brain was like, you don't need this in your head anymore. This is not healthy. Just, I forgot about that. Just yeah. put it in the back of the file yeah. cabinet. And yeah. Yeah. And you told that story on stage at Two Dope Queens. And what I felt in that room, I felt a lot of empathy from Jessica. Mm-hmm. And I felt a lot of empathy from the room and the audience that you had experienced that. Um, but the fact is that within a minute after you told this story and people really being present with you through that experience. You turned the whole thing into a huge joke about how white men are getting a little too brave these days. And like, <laughs> then it, it then yeah. it evolved into a conversation about the zombie apocalypse and who, who you or Jess would be more likely to survive. And you were really, yeah. it was, it was, I, that was something that I loved about working on Two Dope Queens is I always saw you taking these experiences that to me seem like hurtful, painful, scary, and really, making them your own and and you made the whole audience laugh by the end of this story and I'm just curious like how long does it take you to see the funny in something Ooh, that's a good question Joni Mitch um you know in the moment obviously I was like this is fucking nuts and I think I went back inside the restaurant but then when I got home I was just kind of like this is nuts seriously but also like LOL, this is, like, insane. That, you know what I mean? Like, it was just so... Yeah. I think just the way I process things, I I always have, like, a funny filter. So I, I think I... I could have just left it as, like, this really sad moment. And I was just kind of like, well, I want to take back the power in that. You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. some people do that 
they like write poetry or they'll like turn that into like a, a movie script and like you know I just happen to do comedy so I, I try to turn it into jokes but that doesn't mean that I'm not ever vulnerable right I think I allow myself to feel the feels but then I also feel like how can I especially because so much of my comedy is personal and is about my life like how can I talk about this in a way that can maybe make people feel and think, but also like laughs because I feel like laughter is a unifying emotion. So that was just one of those instances where I was like, this is crazy, but let's talk about it. Yeah. Like what else are you going to do <laughs> yeah, with it? Yeah. Exactly. I'm just curious. Has there ever been a situation where you're on stage telling a story and people kind of like laugh at the wrong thing? Yeah, I'm sure. I can't think of one right now, but I think that, happens all the time but you know it's kind of like once you put it out there like doesn't belong to you anymore and like the interpretation takes it over um and so I think I just have a very much like it's mine when it's mine and then once I release it I don't does it belong to me anymore yeah and so it is kind of this like beautiful sort of like temporariness to it um And so I try to really not be too emotionally attached to something once it's done. Mm -hmm. What was the first joke that you did that you feel like you nailed it? Well, my very first joke was a catcalling joke. Because I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and the guys are, like, really basic. So it'd be like, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, what up? Uh, tennis shoes or, like, how's it going, earrings? And then, like, in New York, they always try to guess my birthplace, like— yeah, yo, Jamaica, AA, Tanzania. Uh-huh. And then I go, like, they always guess, like, I'm from, like, some other, like, African country or whatever. It's yeah. because I'm always carrying around, like, a boombox is playing the Lion King soundtrack. <laughs> it's a very, like, it's not a remarkable joke, but that was, like, my first little joke. It was, like, really cool to kind of, like, craft it and, like, you know, the word choice. And you still like it. I still like it. I think it's cute. It's not like, you know, I'm not going to put in my HBO special or whatever. <laughs> but I'm like, as a first joke, that's a pretty solid joke. Yeah. Yeah. To move into a completely different direction. <laughs> you too? <laughs> you have. <laughs> You're like, no. No. You have... Are there any U2 questions? Any Bono questions? No. What? None. Ah! <laughs> what do you have against Bon Bon? I have nothing against Bon Bon. I think he's pretty well represented on the show. Because <laughs> you may talk about him every episode? Yes. <laughs> but I do want to speak to you about another man from across the pond. Oh. Wasn't that a smooth transition? Um, you're in a wonderful relationship with British Bake Off. Yeah. How long have you and your boo been together? It, it'll be uh, 10 months. 10 months. Yeah. You share a lot of your moments together on mm-hmm. social media. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make you feel closer to each other, especially because he's so far away? Yeah, I think because so much of our relationship is rooted in an actual friendship. You know, you have those inside jokes and you have those, like, funny moments. It's really nice to kind of, like, share that on social media because he just cracks me up so much. So it it, it feels nice to do that. And it, it, I also am wary about, like, I don't want it to be constantly just, like, airing our relationship. Right. But I don't know. I just think it really works for us. And I think we just have a lot of fun just, you know, with me posting stuff about us on, on social media. It's cute. Oh, it's thanks. cute. You know... Phoebe, you're one of the hardest working people I know. 
I would call you a workaholic. Um, has your relationship affected your approach to work? Um, he is also a workaholic. And I do always struggle with the work-life balance, but I think Bay and I do a really great job of when we're together, we're together. You know, I mean, we talk every day, we FaceTime every day. Like, we really, you know, for someone like like me who is so consumed with work, this is the most I've ever made time for someone else. Mm -hmm. Okay, so careers are rarely in a straight line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you do one thing that leads to another and another, and then, like, sometimes things stall out or you backtrack and— all of a sudden, you're writing a book. Yeah. You're writing your second book. Yeah. You're in a movie. You're hosting a podcast. And it seems like all the detours that you took a lot of, along the way are the things that didn't quite work out the way you thought would. Yeah. Um, ended up being a part of your journey, mm-hmm. so to speak. And is there like a detour that you had or some sort of like disappointment that you had that you realized was actually so important to your career? Yeah, I think, you know, for the three and a half years I wasn't getting booked on anything I was auditioning for Mm -hmm. I think now I'm just some kind of like every time I get a no for something I'm always like oh that is freeing me up because there's something that I'm supposed to be doing that Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to do if I got a yes for this thing so that's just kind of how I'm looking at it I think it also helps that certainly I'm financially stable the most stable I've ever been in my life at almost 34 years old so I'm less worried about money and so I'm not thrilled about the nose, but I'm also kind of like, okay, you're lost. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've had so much of my career has been people not getting me or not thinking I'm funny. So I'm just kind of like, all right, this person didn't get it and that's okay. Or also a lot of times it's not personal and you just can't. Right. There are a thousand reasons why you're not going to get something. You just have to go like, well, at least I represented myself the best that I could. And, you know, I think my career has so much been the successes have been just really me like pulling from the earth and creating something myself. So I'm just very much in like the things that I think are going to be the biggest for me are the stuff that I, I, I think of. So it's okay. Yeah. So Phoebe's Joni Mitch. Thank you so much for sitting and being a guest on so many white guys. There's one really quick last thing that I want to do with you. Ooh, okay. Which is, I was thinking it could be fun if we did an act of resistance (gasps) together. Okay, sure. Okay, so I'm going to do the throw because I want to and because I can. Y'all. This episode is not over yet. It's time for small acts of resistance. Resist the system. Resist the man. Resist the dominant discourse imposed upon us by the establishment. Do you want me to tell you what my small act of resistance is? Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, I have found that being really nice to people who are rude is the most satisfying thing ever. (laughs) I have started saying, thank you so much. (laughs) And it is incredibly liberating. Yeah, kill my kindness. I get that. Yeah. Do you yeah. ever do you ever do anything like that if someone's rude? I will counter and say, 
my small act of resistance has been to resist. Like, yeah. I know a lot of times I'll be asked to do something and I'll say no and the person will keep persisting. I'll be like, all right. And so now I'm just kind of like, I said no. And I'm not saying it because I'm an asshole. Right. But it's also like, I, I think there is a tendency, especially with women, when a woman says no, it's like, oh, you don't really mean no. You, you'll you do this thing for me. Totally. But there's been a lot of that where I've like had to back out for work stuff and people are just like, okay, but I just got to let you know I'm really disappointed in you and all this stuff. And I'm just like... I, Whenever I get something yeah. like that too, I'm always like, if I was a man, would I be getting this exactly. pushback? Yeah. Mm. So I say our small act of resistance should be... Kill, first, kill them with kindness. Yes. And then if they still don't get it, put your foot down. Be like, a no is a no is a motherfucking no, bitch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The So Many White Guys team includes me, Phoebe Robinson, Rachel Neal, Janice Alatarov, Megan Cunane, Paula Schumann, Jenny Lawton, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, Matt Boyton, and Joe Plord. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. Hey, you know what, y'all? Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and to download your podcast wherever you get them on places like Apple Podcasts. So get to it. You ain't got all day. Bye. We should do a call to action. Oh, should we vote if we should have had more Bono in this episode? Yes. Okay, so you guys... Let us know, because I'm just saying, I got to talk about him. I'm just saying we don't got to talk about him. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Love you, Joni. Love you, too. Thanks, Phoebes.